that fear of failure is something we discussed earlier on, is, is in a lot of adventurers, it's in a lot of people, and it stops a lot of people even attempting it. And that's mm. the sad thing, really. But listening is a skill that we don't do enough as a leader. You know, and one of the skills that I've had to really work on on the ice is patience. This is The Summit by Fearless Adventures. I'm Dominic McGregor, and every week my co-founder David Nunes and I will be talking to inspirational leaders about their experiences as they strive towards their summit. Thanks for joining us today at the, uh, the Summit podcast. Here at Fearless Adventures, we love talking to people who change lives, have vision, uh, and, and want to achieve something in the world. Today we're talking to Alan, who is the first British person to to go unsupported from Canada all the way to the North Pole, uh, so much more. Today he spends his time mentoring on leadership skills and, uh, yeah, looking forward to a conversation. Thanks for coming, Alan. Thank you. It all started in the Royal Marines, I believe. That's correct, yeah. So uh, I, I left home at the age of 16 and then joined the Royal Marines at quite a young age, really, three weeks after I left school. And looking back on it now, I, I actually found out that I'd been accepted for training in the Marines two weeks before my, what would have been the old O-levels, GCSE. So sadly for my parents, I didn't turn up for any of my exams because uh, apart from cookery, and I didn't turn up for, I was, I was up for nine O-levels and I didn't turn up because I'd already got into the training. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that far ahead that if I didn't pass the Marines training that I had nothing to fall back on. But three weeks later, I caught the train and went down to the Commando Training Centre. I was only, what, 16 and a half. When did you know that you were going to go and be a Marine? Well, it's an interesting question because People get motivated by different things. And for me, in 1982, I mean, this year is the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War. So I remember being at home um, at senior school watching the news. And I think the defence secretary at the time was John Knott. And he used to have a little calendar on the side of the, the news. Day three of the war, the Royal Marines. Are, and that really sparked some interest when I was 14. So I kind of ended up doing two paper rounds to earn enough money for a gym membership. And it was the Falklands War that actually was the thing that sparked to try and join the Marines. And obviously, so you're starting off on this journey of, you know, joining the Marines at 16 and a half. The Marines is notorious for the most intensive training programme in the world, is it right? Yeah, it's the longest. Longest, yep. That day one you turn up, obviously you've got no idea what's going to leave you in the future. How do you kind of, how did that kind of process go to everything you've achieved since then? I think I'm quite grounded. So, you know, I understood that I was joining the Marines and it's got a nine-month training program, just a basic training program, whereas the Army, the Navy and the Royal Air Force are a lot shorter by, by many months. So the, the attrition rate was huge. I think we started with 54 in training. We finished with six. So, you know, the chances of getting through without being injured as well and being what we call back-trooped was very high. So I got myself physically fit, but it's the mental fitness that you can't really prepare yourself for at 16. And I remember getting off the train station. The training centre's got its own train platform. Back in the day, it was British Rail, and and I got on in Doncaster, and this one long 13-hour train, and just the few people that are left on the end of it, you realise, and you've got, you know, your Burton's 50-pound suit on in your suitcase. You look around and think, all of us are in in training. And um, for me, I just looked at, trying to get through the nine months, and I didn't look too far ahead. But it's an interesting question, why is it nine months? Because in training, you could be 16, you could be 18, but you could be 25. So you're all in the same training troop, we call it, together. And some people have had a business and folded the business, been married and divorced, and you're 18 and you're doing the same training. And there's a reason why the training is for nine months in the Marines, because it takes nine months to completely change someone's culture. So whether it be the 25-year-old or the 18-year-old, you can, you can get the same outcome. 
Whereas you can't do that in six or eight weeks in the army or the navy because you still get the person who joined up is the person who passes out just with a different uniform. Where nine months, it's the training that that helps. Hopefully, and it still it still is nine months that you get the right outcome is what the Marines are looking for at the end. So of they it. build you down to build back up again. Basically, yeah, or find out what what is down there first mm. and then build you up. And it's it's all very. Uh, I won't say it's scientific, but it's it's a nine months of, of attrition to find get the best and the worst out of you, you know. And yeah. so you found yourself, you kind of you've built that m- mental resilience. Yeah. Over yeah. physical resilience being more important. I think mental resilience being more important, especially later on in life. But one thing that the Marines does teach you is that, and I think this is what's helped me in the adventure world, is that there's no boundaries. We don't look for excuses straight away we look for solutions and that's the way the marines have always been trained so when you when you put that into the adventure world you know it's it's very interesting to believe that you can and not in a big-headed way but believe you can achieve anything and that's been really helped me in the polar world because some of the trips we've done in the polar world no one's ever done before and i always think well somebody eventually will do it so why can't it be me why can't it be our team and I think that's part of the, based on the Marines training where anything is possible. You know, and they do say, and there's a, been a, a push, I think, in recruitment for a while now, you know, it is a mindset, definitely a mindset, you know. It's interesting, like, that's exactly what an entrepreneur sometimes says, right? Why can't I do that? You know, yeah. what's the solution rather than the problem? It's a little bit easier space. <laughs> in the very, yeah, yeah, easier space, space right? The framework of business is very different to the framework of polar. Yeah. We play, in, we play inside rules that have been created and <laughs> polar's well, a little bit different. Yeah, I, I agree. But also, the trips that we do and the, and the entrepreneurs who have got a business idea and want to see it through, the outcome is uncertain in both both areas, whether it be in business or whether it be an adventure, the outcome is uncertain. Otherwise, everything would have been done, everything would have been achieved, every idea would have been thought of, and everybody would be millionaires. You know, so the outcome, so it's, it's the same in a way, and it's that anxiety, nervousness, I think, if you can tap into that energy and direct it in a positive way, helps us get to the North Pole and the South Pole, and I'm sure it helps you and all your clients to actually get through those dark times when you just can't see yourself getting over the hill or getting over the line. That fear of failure, something we discussed earlier on, is, is in a lot of adventurers, it's in a lot of people, and it stops a lot of people even attempting it. And that's mm. the sad thing, really. Fear of failure. Maybe that's been driven by social media. When I joined the Marines, there wasn't really a great big social media. In fact, there weren't any. So, um, <laughs> so we weren't bothered about image and, you know, and, and did we fail or, or not. And, and, and whereas now there's a generation where people don't want to even attempt anything because if they don't make it, that failure is just magnified through social media. You know. How do we give young people resilience? You know, today the world's, you know, complex, it's getting more complicated. The world's, you know, in flux feels like resilience is a key thing that we need to really teach young people. Uh, yeah. You found that when you were in the Marines, you know. How, how do we do that? We've all got resilience inside us, all of us, and I think it ebbs and flows like any energy and like any, any characteristic, you know. For me, resilience comes into, into, into the foreground really when you've got one or two or three things that go wrong all at the same time, and that's when you've really got to tap into it. Everybody has good days and everybody has bad days. I haven't met anybody yet who sails through life and every day is a good day. Even some of the most positive people have dark days and it's, it's tapping into that resilience when, when you need it. But everybody's resilient, everybody. And I don't know how this has happened, but we've got a generation where it's not been looked upon really to, to have the, a younger generation fail a few things or not try things because, so they haven't got that inner resilience, you know, whereas the rest of us, a lot of people I know, will just give things a go. You know? I think, coming back to the social media point, 
we know that everyone has good days and bad days. But if you go on social media, you'll only find people having good days. Correct. Because they're only showing them the good days. Yeah. If they're at a festival, or if they're at a party, or if their outfit's looking good today, or if it's their birthday, you will see their good days. Yeah. You won't see the bad days. So you have this idea that everyone's having a, if you're having a bad day, everyone else is having a good day. So it makes you think you're the problem. True, and I know lots of people, some children and you know cousins and nieces and everything that that literally feed off that. You know, if you're having a bad day, how come the rest of the world is having a great day? So maybe what we do is we we create a whole real social media that would be interesting, wouldn't it? And then you're asking people to share the truth. Yeah, which yeah. is. But I think there's something good about showing your vulnerabilities. hundred percent, yeah. You know, especially from a leadership perspective, because you know everyone expects. You've been in the military and everyone expects anybody who's been in the military to be a great leader. And that's not true. It's not true at all. You know, and a lot of military leaders will lead by fear, which is really poor leadership, really bad leadership, because they don't really know what they're doing. They're in a position of authority that they found themselves in to get up to the next step of the ladder, but they don't know their ass on their elbow. And actually they lead by fear and hide behind a rank, which can completely demotivate, you know, 900 to 1,000 1, people. So, you know, I... I I think showing your vulnerabilities in, in any any leadership role at, at all is, is 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 a positive thing. To be honest with you, nobody knows everything. Mm-hmm. That's about authenticity as well, isn't it? Who it is exactly to? that. Yeah, people you know, buy. You know, the whole cliche: people buy from people. The whole you yeah. know, people connect with people. You know, you've got to show yourself to yeah. be able to build those relationships with individuals. Yeah. I'm not saying you go into your first interview and just reel off the worst CV ever. <laughs> this is my problems. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think, you know, especially like I lead leaders and, and that's quite, I expose myself all the time because I don't, that sounds terrible actually, but you know, but you know, you put yourself out on the ice with five up to 10 CEOs from different countries, different backgrounds, incredibly successful entrepreneurs that have, have done really well for themselves and their companies and their families. And then they're all looking upon you to actually get them to the ends of the earth. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I don't feel that pressure because I understand the job and the role, but my vulnerabilities, you know, and my characteristics, which are not the CEO's characters, are all not just exposed, but they're magnified on the ice. Yep. So there is nowhere to hide. And I think that is one of the things I really do love about the cold expeditions, you know, on the ice caps, the North Pole and the South Pole. Because there's nowhere to hide, I get, I get to work with the raw person, not the CEO, not the entrepreneur who's had the best idea on the planet, but that raw human. And, and the ice itself and the conditions after about two or three days, it, it breaks, it doesn't break it down, it just happens naturally that all of a sudden you get the real person back. And a lot of the people who come on these trips, that's what they want. They want they've, they've either forgotten or they don't have an opportunity anymore in their life to actually be themselves anymore. You know, and I, I don't want to name names, but there's some billionaires we've taken and they can't even go for a, a pint, a drink. They can't, you know, they're under so much pressure with shareholders and PLC and, you know, the city and all the rest of it. Whereas out there, you know, all I expect them to do is to listen to any safety instructions and just be themselves. And it's great to see them actually go right back to probably when they had that first idea as an entrepreneur and they wanted to create a team around them, you know, and embody their, embody their team with, with their passion and idea. And you get to see the spark back in them again, you know. Do you think you're trying to recreate that mini, a mini version of the nine months in the Marines, this whole kind of recalibration, you know, recalibration of who you are and what you're about and... Yeah, I've never looked at it in, in that way. But one thing I do know that happens on the ice is that it, it, it brings people right back to, to where they were, you know, when they were in their early 20s, full of ideas, you know, and energy. 
and even though they've made a lot of money, money can buy you great things, but it, you know, and it can buy you time and, and all, all those things everybody wants, you know, free time and, and not just trying to make the next million or the next 10 million. And I've stayed friends with probably 95% of the women and men I've taken to both poles because it's such a bond, albeit it might be two weeks, three weeks or a month on the ice. You know, it's, 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 I've been able to give them something that all of their money, they, they, couldn't, yeah. have, they couldn't have just created it or bought it or, or done it themselves, yeah. So you get to spend some quality time with some amazing people, you know, yeah. and when we spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs, we always ask like, what is it that's made them make that choice to, be, to, to do something that makes a big change, a big risk, to try and disrupt something, you know, to put themselves out there. A lot of the time, entrepreneurs, there's, they actually want to change the trajectory of their life. There's something, yeah. you know, they want to take themselves from being in this position to kind of somewhere different. Yeah. And actually, this is the sort of thing they need to do to do that. They've always taken big risks. Yeah, it's that fearless mindset, isn't it? Everyone I've taken that have, that have had quite a bit of wealth, you know, from multi-millions to multi-billions, um, have taken a risk. And, and you talk about they want to go from somewhere in their life from there to there. A lot of the time, it's not just monetary. It's not even fame. I know a lot of people that don't want to be famous, but you know, don't want to be known, and they've made tens and hundreds of millions, and they've helped hundreds of people on the, on the way as well. So that journey from this is what I'm normally doing to that, or oh, I'd like to do this, that's driven by purpose again. And it doesn't have to be. You know, we all like to make money, obviously, but it's not just purely driven by the majority of people I, I work with or, or, or adventure with is not, there's only one or two that have been really driven by money and more money. And, and you know, and they're, they're, they're not nice to work with, to be honest, it's just purely money because they put all of um, the soft side of teammanship aside. So all the soft skills that you need, you know, all the empathy and all the listening, they just cut through it. And, and I don't like that on, on, on an expedition, that ruthlessness, because for me, selfishness is probably the biggest, the biggest element in any team that will cause failure. So, and I try and look at that before we go to see who's the selfish one. Nothing wrong with being individually driven, I get that, but if you're gonna work in a team, that individual in a team that is just driven in their own way and won't listen to anybody else, I, I, I'd normally try and take them out. So, you know, you, you, today you spend a lot of your time teaching and mentoring leaders, you know, yeah. which is fantastic. Obviously, entrepreneurs often at the beginning of their journey, they're trying to build great teams. What would be the advice to, you know, startup entrepreneurs about leadership and culture? For me, it's, you know, and I've learned this, that not so much the hard way, but, you know, listening is a skill that we don't do enough as a leader. You know, and one of the skills that I've had to really work on on the ice is patience. Because I've got quite used to it. I can read the ice. I understand where the dangers are, the risks. But for me, I understand where the easy way through the, the rubble or the difficult you know, so when someone else, I always like other people to lead, otherwise it just becomes, oh, we're only there to follow Alan. So, you know, leading from the back is something that I've been practicing for 20 years. As long as I trust my team, I'm happy at the back of the group. You know, as long as there's no direct risk and, you know, and, and in front of us and the person at the front, you know, is roughly going north, for me, that's good enough. Do you know what I mean? As long as we're not doing a big U-turn and, or, you know, or heading east or something. As long as they're going north towards the objective, I'm happy at the back. I don't need to be at the front and, and I think for me the patience is when that person at the front who's not been in this world picks the most difficult route I'm thinking shit come on why can't you see the bit to the right so for me because I spent 20 years reading ice I can sit and they can't so that patience is something that I've had to work on as in why would they see it that's like me going into the banking world or in the stock market 
and, and just looking at the completely wrong set of numbers because it's not my world. So patience and, and listening, I think, is something that we don't do enough as leaders. You can learn so much by listening, you know, so much. Fascinating. So for you personally, obviously, you're helping people who have maybe reached their summit and probably lost their kind of direction a little bit. For you, what, what, what has been your personal summit? It's, it's, it's a brilliant question, really, because I'd like to say I haven't got there yet. You know, otherwise that means I've given up, you know, mentally and physically. And I get a, a little bit annoyed where some people say, oh, success is measured just by the amount of money you've made, which I completely disagree with, you know, and, and I would, because I've seen that financial driver actually bring out the worst in people. You know, greed and selfishness and the horrible traits you see in some people has been driven because they want more money or whatever it is. And there's only so much money you actually, you actually need. So for me, success can be measured by the incredible moments you have in your life. You know, reaching the poles, doing adventures, raising money for charity, you know, running marathons, whatever it is. They're all part of this massive tapestry. So I, 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 to define a summit as in what is it I've, I've always wanted... I think for me, it's going to sound a little bit bland, really, but I've always, since joining the Marines and even now, everything I've done, it's got to have purpose. I've got to get out of bed in the morning knowing that I've got a purpose, whether it be, you know, we work a lot with SEN children. We take special needs children all around the world quietly on adventures to help them, to bridge their gap to them, hopefully to contribute to society when they become adults. And that is probably more rewarding than walking all the way to the North Pole and proving that we did something that no one else has done. So I think it's, it's ongoing and that purpose is something that a lot of people lose when they become financially successful, you know, and, and you can look at people who leave the military, 42 years old, full, full, years, full term service on a pension and they forget they've still got another 25 years to work and they don't want to either, or they don't try and find that second purpose. So the military for me was a great chapter, 17 years of my life, massive amount of purpose. You can't be in the military without purpose. You know, and then from there, I've then carried on the purpose has been the adventures. And from every adventure, there's been a, a secondary purpose, which has either been raising money for certain charities or trying to, trying to achieve things that no one's ever done before to prove they can be done. So purpose for me is, is an ongoing summit. You know, it, will, it will stop one day because my body will just cave in <laughs> i'll just literally stop you know and say right chambers time to go to the caribbean but hmm. um yeah and I, and I think people get get st- stuck in this idea of i need to make a million ten million that's the summit because a lot of the people i've worked with when they've hit that they then wanted another one and it's an obsession i, I understand it because like the, the poles are an obsession to me so i get that i like going back to the north and south poles because looking at it from a leadership perspective Leadership is service, right? So you're only as good as your last, your last trip, your last team you led, the last team you put together, your last project that you succeeded. You know, we had dinner last night with Michelle Rue and he said, you know, a, a chef is only as good as his last meal and it was flipping fantastic last night. <laughs> you know, it was absolutely, I have to say. But constantly training, constantly staying on top of your game, that service is really important to me from a, from a, a leadership perspective. So some what you know there's things i'd like to do what's the one what's like the the next that i should i need to do that so i'd like to uh, and we're going to hopefully this november walk from the coast to the south pole so it's 1150 kilometers quite a few people have done this yep you know it's nothing record breaking in a way but for me internally that would mean that i'd be one of only a handful of people in the world that have walked 
from both coasts to both poles unsupported. Now that's completely different because mm -hmm. I don't think anybody will walk from the coast to, of Canada's North Pole ever again because of climate change and logistics and time allowed on the ice before it melts. So that's an inner goal that, you know, I'm 53 now. If I can crack that this year, I'll be 54. And quietly, I'll be happy with my polar kind of chapter in my life that I've walked from both coasts to both poles. And that's the, that's the, the project at the moment. So we're looking at, obviously, that's personal. But every personal challenge we've done, there's been running that purpose alongside of it. So we're, we're hoping to launch that, that project to raise money for, you know, for the Ukrainian Relief Fund. Because when we go in November, it'll be cold, well, I hope so anyway. And, you know, and then before we know it, once we get through our summer, it'll start to go into the winter in Ukraine. And, and, that, and that, that disaster relief, war relief thing becomes even worse in, in the cold, you know, when you've, when you've got all these displaced people around Ukraine, that are, then the winter sets in. So we want to try and make a link and keep it really simple. I think sometimes people overcomplicate the projects, you know, um, so if we can just keep it, it's a long, cold walk, you know. And How many days is it? It'll be only be about 50, 55. Yeah. Only. Well, <laughs> I'm it's not, like Christmas, back home for Christmas. Yeah, back, that's the plan. Yeah, it's because I don't want to break. I'm not into breaking records. You know, I'm not into racing. So you always have a massive challenge, which is normally UVU. Yeah. You know, logistically, you get to the pole and then you get picked up. What yeah. happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get picked up. Get picked up at the South Pole. Yeah, yeah. and then flown back. Yeah. So I was down there five weeks in Antarctica just before uh, Christmas last year. So which was nice after the lockdown and. You know, Antarctica was shut for 12 months and we, were, we had a massive project we've been working on for two years and we managed to deliver it down there. And it's, that's what got me thinking about it, you know, especially the British, they overcomplicate polar trips and make them so confusing that the general public either don't understand it and lose interest, so therefore don't engage. And if you're running a, a, a fundraiser along the side of it, the more complicated you make, the less chance you've got of raising money. This is really simple. It's a long, cold walk, hopefully. And we'll, there's three or four charities and we're just getting some advice of which one of the Ukrainian relief charities will be the one that can get the things that are needed directly to to the people that affect instead of just in a system do you know what I mean we've raised over 12 million pounds doing the north and south pole you know some of it's gone directly to scientific research for a certain program you know like like the mapping of the brain for the brain tumors it's gone into a specific and funded a really nice part of the research and some's gone into the big charity system where it is still great but you when you're looking for money nowadays off people put a hand in the pocket they like to see something a little bit tangible i think and they make a personal contribution they think right that 15 pound for these guys walking to the south poles bought three blankets i get it mm -hmm. do you know what i mean they can physically see lorries and lorries of blankets so i think if we can simplify it and get the message across you know in a simple way then we'll it will engage more people raise more funds how many, people, how many people are going? Just two. Just two, you and... Yeah, I like even numbers. Odd numbers on the ice are a disaster. <laughs> a disaster waiting to happen, always. I've always stayed away from, as much as I possibly can, from, from odd numbers. Yeah. So if us three were going on the ice, you two are good friends, then one of you might think, oh, I need, to, I need to side with Alan a little bit. He's got a little bit more experience than me. So you start shunning your mate out, and then he's getting upset with you, and hang on a minute, you, and then before you know it, we've got a whole dynamic breaking down because it's an odd number. Four's okay there. Four's great. Yeah. Four's great. So we can come with you. We need one more. Yeah. <laughs> Any volunteers? <laughs> yeah, but you could. You know, four's a, four's a good number. You don't just pair up. So I never let 
So you two wouldn't be in a tent and walk on your own. Me and Sean wouldn't be in a tent and walk on our own. You, you, know, you and I would be in a tent one night and we'd change that around to make sure the team stays as a team, not two teams. And that's really important on the ice because little things that we won't even notice in, in a room like this or in a meeting or you know, out for dinner, out there, they'll start to annoy you and then it'll build and build and build. And if you don't address these, these little mannerisms in people immediately, it just turns into sour and it's a disaster. And everybody comes into one tent to, to cook and eat, so we keep it like a family. You know, then you have your own little space afterwards. So, yeah, but, but even numbers are best. Threes are just a disaster waiting to happen. Massive disaster. Yeah. I think on, on that note, thank you for listening. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Wow. Yeah, thank Brilliant. you for listening. That um, was incredible. Thanks for joining us today, Alan. Love the chat. Really, really appreciate the time. And uh, for everyone listening, um, I hope you learned as much as we did. And uh, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and tell us what you thought about the podcast because for me, probably my favourite one so far. Thank you.